for a lot of sales teams who are used to getting leads to work, it's such a different mindset shift. And I underestimated it, honestly. Like, I'm kind of like, this is the best thing ever. It's the biggest no-brainer since no-brainers, right? Like, why wouldn't you do this? And just to kind of see the resistance to change, it's like, all right, this is actually a change management problem. It's not a data technology problem. This is Revenue Makers, the podcast by Sixth Sense, investigating successful revenue strategies that pushed companies ahead. Oh, Adam, are you ready for today's episode? Oh, I am. So who do we have in the hot seat today? We are going to be joined by Casey Carey, CMO of Quantiv. Quantiv is a SaaS company providing a platform to connect your OKRs to business performance. Casey's background is incredible, by the way. He's got multiple CMO gigs at some really amazing companies, along with some time at some smaller, lesser known companies like Google and Adobe, you know. <laughs> Casey's also very involved with our CMO Coffee Talk community at Six Sense. Well, so we're gonna dig into a topic that could not be any more near and dear to our hearts here at Six Sense, which is really the, the transition to an account-based strategy. As is the theme of our podcast, it's not just sales, it's not just marketing. It's an entire organizational shift, and he's been there multiple times, so really excited to dig in. Love it. Super actionable, I'm sure. Something tells me this is going to be so good. And when we're done, we'll walk away with some really amazing and actionable insights. Game on. All right, Saima, here we are again. We are back. Another episode. Super, and I say this every time, but here I am excited yet again. I'm always excited, but we have a really... Really, really great guest with us today. Casey Carey is going to talk about account-based, which a little bit near and dear to our hearts here at Sixth Sense, Casey. So thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Sure. So I think we're going to just dive right in. And I think we'll start, I don't want to say elementary, but maybe it's elementary, because I think a lot of people could describe account-based marketing, account-based sales, account-based revenue. I guess from your perspective, how would you describe an account-based strategy from the beginning? Yeah, great question. Obviously, lots of people have opined on this. I think the main difference is you start with the account, right? In classic legion, you're probably looking at leads or contacts, and maybe you work into an account more broadly, but often it's a one-and-done type of motion. The account base really forces you to think about who are the most important accounts and then who are the people within those accounts that makes sense for you to put your messages in front of and engage with. So a lot of the tactics are the same. I think it's just a different strategy or a different approach. And clearly there's strategic approaches, there's velocity approaches. You know, there's a lot of variations on account-based marketing and probably the traditionalists would say it's more strategic than velocity and that's fine. But yeah, so it's putting the, starting with accounts and then working from there from a campaign perspective. Yeah, makes sense. And I like what you said there. I mean, I think it truly can run the gamut of more transactional commercial type accounts all the way up to strategic. I mean, at Sixth Sense, we apply an account-based approach at scale, whether it's doing one-to-one -one programs or one-to-many-many -many accounts. And so what would you say, Casey, have been some of the key benefits that you've seen transitioning to an account-based revenue model? Yeah, and the obvious one is you're starting with an ICP. And, you know, a, a set of accounts, whether it's 10 or 10,000 that you've decided are your most important accounts, and you're putting programs against those, right? So I think just that targeting and 
a natural outcome of that. If you agree with sales on the ICP, now we've got alignment. Like we've all been marketers forever. And one of our favorite things is, you know, sales saying, quit sending us the wrong accounts, right? And it's like, but we agreed on those accounts. <laughs> so it forces that conversation. And I, I think that's a huge value and benefit that comes out of it. Yeah. How do you go about getting yeah. that alignment? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a very easy thing to say. I mean, we're, we've got a lot of companies coming up on annual planning yep. for the next year. How should we even start? It was one of the first things I took on in my current role. There was no alignment, honestly. Marketing was doing their thing. Sales was doing their thing. They were both pissed off at each other. It was, you know, kind of classic situation. So sit down with the sales leadership and force the conversation. And it was a hard conversation because often sales doesn't want to close the aperture. They, they don't want to lose the possibility to have as many opportunities as possible, right? And I said, I can't target everybody. I, can't, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough people. I don't have enough time. Who should I spend my money on, right? And so just having them be okay, particularly with, we're not saying that if somebody comes in the door that's not in our ICP, we're not going to try and close them, right? Like we will always be opportunistic within reason. But if we're going to focus our time and effort, let's agree to what those are. And we've gotten there. Even we're doing our planning now, as you mentioned. And I sent a Slack to our chief revenue officer and said, this is who we're currently targeting, still agree or disagree. And she took some countries out. We made some changes on industry focus and a few other things. So once it's there, like, and you agree, then it just becomes a basis for continued decision-making. In some of these conversations, and maybe other companies need to have the conversation about, do you find that sales is holding the, the concept of a lead still kind of like holy, like we want leads. I know you said they don't want to miss any opportunities, but has that yeah. saying, okay, we're moving away from that. Has that been a big part of it too? Or just ultimately, you know, the targeting and the ICP or where's your biggest, I don't want to say struggle, but where's the biggest yeah, struggle yeah. or challenge really been? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Like the lead is not dead. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to say that. They still love their leads. Why can't we get hundreds more hand raisers? I'm like, I would love to have that happen. Yeah. <laughs> It would drive down my tax significantly if I could do that. I'm working on it. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think really helped us was just pushing that mindset of, hey, this isn't a person who we think might be interested. This is an account who looks like the rest of our customers, who's showing sufficient intent that we should invest our time and effort. Your job is to actually build out an account engagement strategy. Right. So it's no longer like I'm going to run a 16 step sequence against this person. It's okay. Here's my target personas. Here's the people I really need to go after. Here's some people on the periphery that I want to stay in front of and really get them to think about strategic selling into an account with marketing supporting it. And that was, that's a big mindset shift. And I would say maybe two thirds of our sales team are like fully embraced in there. We still have the ones who I go look at kind of the account, you know, outreach and what's happened on accounts, what the level of engagement is, et cetera. And there's times where I'm just like, that's all we did. Uh oh. They had sales leadership's bought into it. So fortunately, they've put in place account engagement scores. So they look at the book of accounts and look at the level of activity, number of contacts, number of engaged contacts, 
et cetera. And basically, you can't turn an account back in until you've fully worked it. And the account engagement score kind of enforces that mindset. Nice. Just to close out the topic of kind of the definition and alignment, I feel, you know, just some really tangible takeaways for the audience. What sorts of criteria are you including in that ICP? And I heard you mention country. I heard you mention industry. But just, you know, if you could rattle off a couple of them. Yeah, I think ICP means a lot of different things to different people. Some people go as far as including persona, behavior data in an ICP. We stop at fit. This company has the technographics that look like our customers. So we draw a pretty hard line. And then we have separate persona, target personas, and then separate intent data, right? You put all those three things together, here's your priority accounts that you should go after. Some people look at that entire thing. A great kind of antidote on the alignment. We've seen a lot of activity in the Middle East, at least prior to the current situation. And, you know, one day I looked and I saw Saudi Arabia is the second highest traffic to our website over the U.S. I'm like, how is that even possible? <laughs> right. So I went and looked. I'm like, yeah, it's real, right? So I reached out to the sales team and they're like, oh, yeah, OKR is on fire in the Middle East. Everybody's talking about them. Everybody's conferences. Like, it's this big deal. One of the things we realized is we exclude government and education from our ICP. Because you get a lot of students and you just get people who don't have money to buy software. So we'd agree But what we realized in the Middle East, often the government and the institutions and businesses are the same. They're highly connected. So, you know, within the Middle East, we went and added government and education back into the ICP to support that. So it's great that it kind of forces those types of analysis and conversations to make sure that alignment occurs. Yeah. And it's a great point about iterating on that definition, right? It's almost equally important to understand, okay, where is additional demand, even opportunities or revenue coming from outside of this definition? And does that mean every six months we need to refine? Yeah. Yeah. And even I think like if you see something, you know, say something almost like, and, and similarly, like we had India in our ICP, we saw a lot of activity in India, but nothing was turning into deals. And so we got to the point where we're like, okay, we're going to pull back on India. And it was the right move. Mm-hmm. And he said something about if you see something, say something. But have you sort of employed a, do you have like a set, okay, every quarter we sit down and we look at it, or is it really just opportunistic? We're looking at the data and say, okay, this clearly calls for us to make a change on the ICP. Or do you have, have you sort of proselytized? Is that a proselytized? Yeah, word? yeah. <laughs> we actually run a weekly sales and marketing leadership meeting. And so these conversations are usually on the agenda for that meeting. And they tend to be from some very tactical ones. And we're removing this field from our forms. And here's the impact on the BDR team to, hey, we're spending a ton of money in India, not seeing any deals over the last six months. What do you want to do? So I love that. And we weren't going to go there yet. But I think the strategy is one thing. The alignment almost does have to continue to be, I don't want to use the word forced, but you need to have a forum to be removing some of the silos between sales and marketing. And so you mentioned you have a weekly meeting. Who's in the meeting and who runs the meeting? Absolutely. And we use the term interlock just to kind of force that, like, here's why we're here, right? Yeah. (laughs) It is to raise issues, make decisions and agree. So it's ran by our head of RevOps. Yeah, makes sense. Interestingly, like a lot of the issues are having to do with our technology or 
reports and things like that. So he runs it. He reports into our CRO. So we've got the CRO, we've got our theater leaders who are basically vice presidents of sales, North America, Europe, Asia, myself, and then my head of demand gen um, are in that meeting. Oh, and the, and the leader of the BDR team. So enough seniority in the room to make these decisions yeah. then, which is, I think, an important point. Yeah. Yeah. We tr- interesting. We tried those two levels down and it was not successful. <laughs> partly personalities, partly just didn't feel like they had the authority. And so it's kind of like, all right, I agreed with our CRO. We've got a, numerous issues. Let's figure out a mechanism so that we could get these resolved and, and move much more quickly. So in the question we talk about getting, obviously getting sales in the, on board, I had some experience earlier in my career, it wasn't that long ago, maybe six, seven years ago, of trying to get the board on board in the sense of, <laughs> I was, it was, I had just started a company. I walked into my first board meeting and we were, you know, it was still early days, but at the end of the meeting, there was a um, board, he'd been around for a long time. He pulled out his first gen iPad, you know, that broken screen and yep. a picture of a lead literally had the <laughs> funnel on it. He's like, I need to no. see this, this, and this. And I was like, okay, interesting. Have you sort of dealt with, you know, obviously getting further up on board, or do you think we're at a point now where boards are kind of, they get it, they get this approach is how they're going to be successful? I think it's a mixed bag. In my previous role at Kazoo, I still remember telling the board that my goal is to drive MQLs to zero and at the same time, increase the pipeline. And they're like, what? <laughs> How? How does that work? I'm like, all right, I'll explain it to you. Trust me, and we'll get there. And we did it. We went to almost, and we had hand raisers and six QAs. That was our demand model. Here it's been a little bit more complicated. There, we have a huge addiction to paid media and driving MQLs, driving form completes and MQLs and a BDR team making the calls and just the classic lead gen model. The economics are tough. It doesn't scale. I, and it's gotten worse over the last three or four years. Like the performance just keeps decreasing. So I said, okay. And I'd started to make the shift and I really hadn't honestly socialized it high enough in part because I didn't think they would want it to understand it. But literally like a year ago, I almost got fired for moving budget away from our MQL programs into six QA programs. <laughs> so yeah, I got, I got yelled at. So kind of reset on that and kind of had to go on this education kind of campaign and get everybody up to speed. And yeah, so it's not just the board. Our CRO was totally on board. It was the CEO and our chief strategy officer. It was unfortunate timing, right? Like it was Q3 of last year and market demand went down significantly. At the same time, we were making these changes. Um, so it wasn't the market, it was our fault, but it turned out to be the market. Yeah, I think all in all. So long story short, we kind of have three motions. We have an MQL motion, we have a demand gen motion, which is basically six QAs, and then we've got a self-serve motion, which is free and trial signups that we qualify for upsell opportunities. I would still love to shift more off the MQL plate into the other plates, still working on that, but that's kind of the model that we currently have in place. That's, I think, the whole point of this conversation is it is a journey. It doesn't happen overnight, and as long as you've got this North Star that you're working towards and 
you are communicating it effectively and all those things, right? Then I think, you know, you can show success. You mentioned this a little bit, right? You had to go on a roadshow. You had to continue to socialize it. Outside of that, how has the role of the CMO evolved in the context of account-based revenue? Like what sorts of responsibility skills, things have you had to do just to make sure that this model is widely used? I would say it's interesting, right? Like I fortunately have a science engineering background, so data and models don't scare me. A big part of my job has been educating people on data and models. You wish I could just say, like, trust me, it works. And that doesn't happen. In fact, I had salespeople proactively trying to prove the model wrong. <laughs> I'm like, it's not, thanks. They know yeah, better. not possible, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, but, oh, good for you. <laughs> but literally, like, yeah, like, hey, I saw this thing. And so six QAs don't work. I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. So or not believing it. And, and here's like a really good example. So it's not too much of a stretch to think that people who are researching or thinking about remote and hybrid work models may also be interested in OKRs and other types of goal management. Because it turns out if people aren't in the office together, you have to spend more time making sure they have goals and are delivering and being held accountable, right? So, but without fail, at least once a week, I'd get somebody like, why are we marketing to people who are searching for remote work? I was like, look, if it's important in the model, like the model will decide, right? If it's not important, either way, you don't have to worry about that. What you have to worry about is, is this a 6QA and should you be working or not? But they're like returning 6QAs because one of the keywords that came up was remote work. I was just like swimming upstream against those kinds of things quite often. Then actually went on a roadshow of, I called it uh, the quota buster sessions, explaining customer lookalike models, explaining intent data, explaining buying stage models, showing them how they can leverage the keywords and making their outreach more relevant, how to think about target personas and just going through and literally I think for a lot of sales teams who are used to getting leads to work, it's such a different mindset shift. And, and I underestimated it, honestly. Like, I'm kind of like, this is the best thing ever. It's the biggest no-brainer since no-brainers, right? Like, why wouldn't you do this? And just to kind of see the resistance to change, it's like, all right, this is actually a change management problem. It's not a data technology problem. We're still working on it, but yeah, we've made progress there. I'm curious, like when you talk about, you know, that I always say like to customers, crawl, walk, run uh, in terms of like this, the journey and all that. And you said you've got, you sort of those three models, right? You've got the, the, the qualified account model, you've got the MQL model, and you have your sort of your, your free PLG model. Is there a lot of crossover in the sense that are you informing your free signups or are the MQLs getting informed by some of the account base? Like how, how are those things kind of intersecting? Because I would imagine you're not running so very separate lanes without yep. them coming together in some form. Huge overlap between the three of them, huge overlap. And it creates an optimization problem, right? Because ideally we wouldn't be investing in all three to get one opportunity, but you know, that happens, right? So we looked at, of all the opportunities open over a period of time, how many of those opportunities created self-server trial accounts? Turns out a bunch of them, right? 
people want to experience the product and we give them a great mechanism to do that and they take advantage of it. We still need to drive kind of that model and traffic and four-week actives and because ultimately there's a maturity curve where people are going to use the product and then pay for the product, right? So we've what I tried to do was say like, look, we're not going to measure success on the number of accounts that become qualified sales opportunities. We're going to measure success on four-week actives, right? And that's why that exists, but we're going to get qualified opportunities. That's icing on the cake. So, okay, stop that conversation. And then it turns out like a high percentage of our six QAs are also MQLs. And a lot of the MQL scoring activity is the same activity that the Sixth Sense model is looking at. So we flag it as an MQL and Sixth Sense says, you know, it's in buying stage. It's like, oh, the model works, <laughs> right? And it just shows that we're actually generating demand, right? We're not capturing like, so anyway, yeah, to your point, there's a lot of overlap over that. And I've just gotten everybody to be okay with it. Like, yes, we're double counting, right? Like we've got... 60 opportunities from here, 47 from here, guess what? You know, if we turn one or the other off, it would be somewhere in between those two, right? Yeah. So, because we kind of went there. Yeah. Can we talk about how the metrics changed when you went from an inbound MQL model to diversifying into the 6QA, which just for the listeners, I will say a 6QA is a six cents qualified account, which essentially means that an account has shown enough intent that it really is ready to be passed to sellers. Exactly. So we I mean, we basically manage three three funnels. And we have metrics for three funnels, particularly for the the six QA funnel. We're looking at account reach. So back to the alignment, we've defined our serviceable obtainable market. It's a set of accounts, you know, fairly fixed number of accounts that we spend money against to try and help generate demand. And so we look at percent reached of the song, percent of accounts engaged and level of engagement, and then ultimately what percent of those end up on the website. So those programs are looking at opportunities created or pipeline. We're looking at message in front of those accounts and then our, how much engagement are we creating within those accounts and optimizing for that. So. And my demand gen leader is very, you know, he comes from the MQL world, right? And it's taken a while for him to let that go, right? He's like, oh, but we didn't create any opportunities. Like, I don't care. I do not care. What's the level of engagement? That's all I care about, right? And those ultimately become hand raisers. They become MQLs. Like, they'll fall through. I have total confidence in that. And so optimize for the engagement. Don't optimize for form submits or hand raisers. When thinking about like, so we talk about getting these accounts engaged, you know, whether, you know, where you are now or previous roles, can you think of, was there, and this is, I guess a loaded question, a, a campaign, account-based campaign, I mean, you could put a quotation fingers around, yeah. something that you executed that was wildly successful, really successful in terms of, it just could be driving that account engagement up really high. Maybe it was created, you know, much more pipeline than other programs, something you could point to that's like, Man, I mean, we need to recreate that every day because it was just so, you know, it was so impactful. Yeah. So we found that with functional role campaigns. So we did a CIO campaign, CIO being a placeholder for a senior technology leader. You know, we would go BP and down, but, you know, it's a classic playbook of learn what their pains are, put together some content, 
connected to the solution, create the landing pages and the assets and the ads, give the BDRs the right outreach stuff in context and just really focus within the solves. You know, let's go after these personas. With that strategy, we're seeing really, really good results. Like trying to, can't think of any of the numbers off the top of my head, but really good results. I mean, the challenge is content, right? So we've been like every quarter we chunk through a function, right? We do have done chief strategy officers, we've done chiefs of staff, we've done CIO. And we actually started with the highest level of content engagement on our website. So we're looking at like, okay, CIO is one of our most popular pieces of content. Let's go ahead and build out a full journey campaign for CIOs. And just kind of looking at it that way and chunking down the list. So those seem to work well. In the past, I've ran like a credit union campaign. You know, 580 credit unions in the U.S. Going to go after them. Not that expensive to go after that small number of accounts, but saw really high performance off the other side. Yeah. And the beauty of this approach is... You're tailoring the content based on what you know is resonating with them, right? What keywords they're interested in, what existing content is resonating, like you said, that CIO page, right? You're just building on that. But oftentimes in the B2B side in particular, like we tend to assume that these folks are getting a very curated experience on the B2C side of their life already, right? They're demanding it and frankly expecting it at this point from their B2B interactions too. And so it really is a challenge for us as marketers to be curating that journey for them and to be giving them that personalized view of what we know is a pain point for them and solving it and and giving them all that information as opposed to the traditional sort of one size fits all. Yeah, yeah I think if you look at my inbox, okay. I would say most of B2B marketing is not very relevant. <laughs> it's pretty bad, but you're right. It, it takes work and effort, but the results are there. And it's the gift that keeps giving, right? Like, it's not like, hey, let's run this campaign for this quarter and then do something else. It's like, no, that campaign's an evergreen campaign now. We may update the content. We may update some of the targeting, but that is an evergreen campaign that we will continue to run and monitor performance against. Okay, now let's do another one of those. And I think that's how you create compounding effect over time. I think to your point, I think too often as marketers, we get bored. Right? We come up with this great idea. We do all this work. We put it in market. A quarter later, we're like, okay, let's do something else, right? And it's not how it works. Like you really need to just, it's building blocks that you're building on top of continually. Either there's an optimization loop on it or it's like another step that you've got to continually do that. And I almost think of it as it's a portfolio of investments and you keep placing bets and you keep optimizing your bets. And then sometimes you got to curate some of them and take them out, but you're just managing a portfolio of investments over time. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely, marketers are definitely guilty of shiny object syndrome all the time. Like, yeah. oh, what's next? And all, all that. And just, you know, like you got to keep your eyes on the prize. Uh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, we should be running an AI <laughs> campaign. It's like, oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Aren't you everybody else? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, cautionary tales, right? You've gone through this process multiple times. You know, what would you say to somebody, like either sitting in your sitting in your chair, you know, running a software company, trying to make this transition, things that you say, like, don't do this. I went down this path and didn't go well. Clearly, you already said one because you almost were asked to leave, but anything else that yep. um, you'd really want to put out there to anyone that's listening, thinking through this process? Yeah, I, I think and I mentioned this, it's a change management process, right? So start there. Like there's plenty of proven models on how you manage 
organizational change, and you got to think about it that way. I mean, like I said, me as a marketer and like understanding how this stuff works and what the potential is, is kind of like, why would you not do this right now? Right? Like, I'm not going to spend my time convincing you should because it's so obvious, but that's not how it works. Right? So really thinking about it that way, identifying some champions, like we always do this, you know, I've got two or three people who every time, and love these stories, right? Like, oh, this count six QA'd, three days later, they came as a hand raiser. Two days after that, we've got an open opportunity and it's moving fast, right? It's just like, get those success stories out there. People want to be part of the team that's winning, right? So just kind of create that momentum as part of that. The two things we did that were game changers for us. We moved to a dynamic book model for sales. Yeah. And yes. the basis of the dynamic books is now six QAs. Before that, they could pick their own accounts or they could pick six or work six QAs or whatever they wanted to do, right? And there was an uphill battle to get them to work six QAs. But at the same time, at any point in time, we had a thousand six QAs not being worked. And so anytime somebody would complain about pipeline, I would remind them that there was more than double our current pipeline generation going unworked. Makes me cry. <laughs> Gosh. Right. Um, yeah. So she's kind of like, I, I'm handing it to you on a platter. Like, let me help you take advantage of it. Right. Help me and help so you, finding yeah. the people who wanted to who really want to take advantage of that and create that success. And then just building on that momentum worked pretty well. Nice. And then, of course, I, I love the sharing your success stories, really building that momentum, planning out where to start, how to show those early successes, and then hopefully, you know, everyone will get on board. What role would you say technology plays in the execution of an account-based strategy? I'd say it creates a lot of complexities, right? And there's still some gaps in the technology, I think, that are kind of hold people back. It's without question the right way to do it. But now it's just much more complicated. Some of these accounts, we've got upwards of 100 target personas in an account that they're trying to, trying to work, right? And so you start getting into like, are these people in the U.S. or are they in Europe? Like, where's the interest coming from? And can I focus in on that? And are these the right personas? And, you know, one of the things we've really struggled with is... You know, in the ideal world, the sales team would be like, tell me who to call and what to say to them, right? And we're kind of in the, I can tell you which accounts you should focus on. I can tell you the personas that you may want to outreach and the things that they're interested in, but you're going to need to connect all the dots, right? And I think some of our salespeople struggle with that complexity of trying to connect all those dots. So either they just don't do it or they kind of just, do the same thing for everybody. And then those who are really thinking about it strategically are the ones who connect the dots, get the right personas, get some relevant messaging, going in their outreach sequences and start building, you know, a map of the account and start working each of the opportunities within it. So yeah, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be taking a very well thought out persona map, a six QA account and handing them all the contacts with kind of the value messages for each one. Like if I could automate that process, yep. I would be a hero. But a lot of a lot of them struggle with that right now. It's just it's complex. It's a hard problem. Sure. Yeah. 
It is. There's so many companies that understand the value of an account-based approach, but they're hesitating to make that transition, right? There's like this, oh, our data is not great, or like there's always a reason, right? What would you say to those folks Yeah, who understand, like they're sold on the concept, but they're just hesitant to make that? Yeah, my favorite response really is what's the alternative, right? I've got something that's better than kind of anything else you're going to do. It's not perfect. It's not even close to perfect, but it's marketably better. So you could randomly pick counts and try and contact people, or you could take accounts that look like our best customers and that we think are in market for what we sell. Which one would you like to eat? And often they're like, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) Right. Right. They still don't like the answer, but it's they're like, all right, that's a better answer than the other alternative. So, okay, I'll do it. So that seems to work. You've always got the skeptics. What's the famous box quote? All models are wrong, but some are useful. Yeah. <laughs> In B2B, pretty much all the data is wrong, but some of it's useful. <laughs> it's just getting people to understand that like, this is better and it's going to get you farther faster. It will never be perfect and we all need to be okay with that. It's just the way it is. And they know that. They're like, oh, but you got this magic box. It should all be perfect. It's like, no, no, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Still got to put in the work. Yep. So we have a regular question or segment that we ask everyone. Sure. To to kind of line us out here towards the end. So what is the most ridiculous thing that you've been asked to do in any role? Whether positive or negative. So I'll give you an example. We had we had one guest who was told to sunset an entire product three days out and just say, oh, you got to shut down until our entire customer base or someone else that was told to hire an entire enterprise sales team in three weeks. So anything crazy out there? The outcome could be positive. The outcome could be disastrous. So my boss, not to be named, <laughs> got excited about this idea of basically creating a BDR bot. Mm. So he wanted to automate taking six QAs, scraping the contacts where we could get that data for a target set of personas, automating the outreach sequences, and basically building an automated machine to work six QAs and maybe even beyond six QAs, right? Like we're going to go into consideration. We could go into ICP week. Like we can open the aperture, right? And the ridiculous part was, don't tell anybody in sales you're working on this. Right. <laughs> a secret. <laughs> secret, right? It's like, oh, I've spent all this time and effort creating such a great relationship and alignment with the sales organization. And now you want me to like, I mean, it was, if you read between the lines, he didn't believe sales was doing their job and he wanted me to do their job for them, but not tell them I was going to do it for them. Um, well, you did have a thousand unworked six weeks. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually where the idea started, um, but it kind of spun out of control. Uh, fortunately, I did a lot of work on that, including we've got an in-house team that whose remit is to use technology and AI to improve our business processes, which is such an amazing thing to have. I can just point them at a problem and they'll go solve it for me. They help solve some of the take a persona map and go get me all the contacts problems, which was pretty interesting. But fortunately, I ended up not having to put it in production and roll it out. So Mm, that's a good one. It's a good one. I will say, though, Casey, we 
do that. I know. I, I took and a believe look, it or not, I took a look at yeah, ten percent. Yeah, ten yeah, percent of our pipeline is being generated through this autonomous AI assistant. Yeah, so, no, I, I don't think it's a bad when idea. Done well, yeah, I don't it think works. it's a bad idea. Like I said, particularly for un unworked six QAs or even other accounts, like nobody's touching them, so who cares, right? Like, let's go work them, and if we get ten percent out of it, that's awesome. That's ten percent more than I had. So yeah, I think conceptually it's a great idea. I think the the hard part was trying to like replace the sales team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think it's a replacement. No. To your point, it's an augmentation yeah. of what what can what do they not have capacity for? Let's make sure. Yeah, and they should know yeah. about it. We it would be good it. to share. Yeah, yeah. But it's not going to help yeah, alignment too much. Yeah. It was a political play, and I was the pawn. <laughs> yeah. Well. This has been great. Really appreciate it. I know we ran long on this, but this is a, a great topic near and dear to I'm sure all of us. And so Casey, really, really appreciate your time today. There's there's actionable insights out the wazoo here. So hopefully everyone that's listening is, is taking heavy notes or you can obviously hit the replay button. So again, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. And any questions anybody has, feel free to reach out to me. You've been listening to Revenue Makers. Do you have a revenue project you were asked to execute that had wild success? Share your story with us at sixcents.com slash revenue. We might just ask you to come on the show. And if you don't want to miss the next episode, be sure to follow along on your favorite podcast app.